Welcome to the Conservation Today show. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today I'm going to speak with Pat Quinn, the Conservation Chair of Umqua Watersheds. Welcome, Pat. Thank you, Francis, for affording me this opportunity. Now, your position with Umqua Watersheds, you look at most of the public land projects the environmental assessments that the BLM and the Forest Service do, and you write public comments for the public, on behalf of the public, to the agencies on these projects. Is that Do I have that right? You have that right, Francis. Uh, the National Environmental Policy Act, signed into law by President Richard Nixon in 1970, provided a portal for communities, individuals, affected individuals, interested individuals, to help formulate, in the beginning, federal land management actions. To help formulate them, not just to criticize. So this is the federal government's way of involving the public in their public lands. Right, because as you know, historically, the public had very little to say. Industry had an awful lot to say, whether we're talking about mineral withdrawal from mining, gas and oil exploration, or logging, timber extraction on federal lands. So this was a way to afford the public a means of participation. Now these are, as you said, these are the NEPA regulations, and that's the National Environmental Policy Act that you participate in. And you do a lot of looking at the Roseburg BLM timber sale proposals. And Coos Bay BLM. And Coos Bay BLM. And the BLM has been producing more timber sales lately. Uh, is that right? Well, the BLM has begun offering what they call regeneration harvests, which is a forestry science term of art. It's the closest the public land agency will come to a clear cut. It's another word for a clear cut, a regeneration harvest, except unlike private land, they will leave a few trees scattered there, around. There is considerably more, depending on the nature of the regen, there are a few kinds, but there is more green tree retention, notably in the riparian reserves, notably in situations where there are listed species, spotted owls, marble murrelets. Uh, there are, is also generally in the most uh, extreme kind of regen on federal land a, a certain amount of green tree retention. Now, there's been a change in the resource management plan for Western Oregon, for BLM, a reduction overall in the width of riparian buffers. Generally speaking, they've been cut in half. Not in every case, but effectively, yes. At the same time, they claim uh, mitigation by enlarging the inner riparian buffer closest to the water. Many of us feel that uh, that's not sufficient mitigation. We, especially because BLM operates in the checkerboard of alternating ownerships, public-private. Yeah, that checkerboard is important in Western Oregon. We know that uh, from our interview with Daniel Robinson that every other section uh, belongs to BLM, managed under the 1936 ONC Act. 
and this is because these lands were revested back to the federal government after the railroads screwed up. And every other section then is owned and managed by private industrial forest companies under the Oregon Forest Practices Act. That's uh, more or less the case. Uh, sometimes you'll see aggregates of BLM land, and sometimes you'll see aggregates of private industrial land on some landscapes. For example, the Six Twigs analysis area out of Coos Bay BLM, just north of the Sixes River. Out of 115,000 acres, BLM only controls maybe 6.5%. I see. So it's not always true that they own 50% of the watershed. It could be less. It can be less, and yes. In less situations, it's more. But first of all, I want to talk more about that, but I also want to ask you about the management plan change that you mentioned, that the BLM has a new resource management plan that came into being a few years ago, and some, and just now most timber sales are coming out under the new management plan, which reduced the riparian reserves by 50% and eliminated the surveys required for rare species. It eliminated the survey and manage requirements. So they do far less surveys for rare species. They no longer survey for red trevals, for instance. Yeah, that kind of uh, fits in with their acknowledgement, tacit acknowledgement of uh, steadily reduced funding from Congress to staff BLM science positions. This is very true of both uh, BLM at the Forest Service, mm -hmm. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marines Fisheries Service. Uh, I don't think it's uh, by accident. Mm -hmm. I think it's equivalent to... Uh, how the Environmental Protection Agency uh, was emasculated over decades, beginning with Ronald Reagan. It makes them far less able to engage yeah. in science-based planning. It isn't that the new resource management plan for Western Oregon is all bad. They were under great pressure to provide an assigned sale quantity, that is, the, um, the board feet of timber removed in Western Oregon each year to get it up close to 500 million board feet. They ended up at about 278 million board feet to be cut per year, which is an increase over maybe, I can't now recall, 20 or 30 million board feet, I'm guessing right now from memory. Do you know what it is for Roseburg BLM? For, well, it's 32 million and what was feet. it under the old management? Forty million. Forty million. So it's reduced somewhat in Roseburg BLM. It is. In fact, uh, I, if I recall correctly, it's been a few years now. There was an in a greater increase in ASQ in the northern part of Western Oregon to as opposed to the southwest mm -hmm. down here. Because northern Oregon has more more moisture, so they have more volume of trees growing there? I guess that, I think that was the assumption, yeah. yeah right, right. Um, they, they have different, also now they have different land use allocations, LUAs. Uh, they have the uneven timber management area, which to me has always been somewhat confusing. Uh, it, it, it was like an expansion of the variable retention harvest model, but it seemed to me that the openings were expanded more than the retained portions. 
Yeah, it's up to four acres openings. Yeah, and we see that in recent sales, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they have the, the, the light intensity management and the moderate intensity management, which are a bit euphemistic, especially with the latter, where they retain only 5 to 15% of the pre-logging basal area. And anything under 40 inches diameter at breast height and or that did not pop out of the ground on or before 1850 can be marked for cutting. And so that is the light? That, that's the moderate that's intensity. The, moderate the light to, is... So it, the moderate, they have to leave five, to, only five... Five to fifteen percent. As, as little as five percent. As little, as little. Yeah. And if they they will they do specify that they will leave legacy trees, which comes toward that five percent. Well, well, yeah. And, and if you if you have two or three old growth trees, the legacy tree is another term in my mind for old growth. You will quickly eat up that residual basal area. And you'll end up, if they follow that prescription, quite possibly with what looks like a clear cut with some big old trees left hanging to whatever fate awaits them. Now that is the uh, moderate. Moderate. I hate to see the heavy. So that's they d- didn't choose any of the heavy in the new resource management plan. They just choose moderate and light. Light. Now under the light, what are they required to leave? I believe that's fifteen to twenty-five percent. As little as fifteen percent. Yeah, yes. that's the beginning, the bottom line. What, what, what gets to me? What the 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 big factor with BLM is the context within which all of these actions would occur. And that context is the checkerboard. Right now, with the price of number two dug fir at record levels, and also cut lumber has finally caught up too, since they've cut off the Canadian import by and large, we have frenzied activity on the intervening, on the adjacent and proximate private industrial lands, neighboring BLM. We are witnessing frenzied clear-cutting. So, right from the beginning, you have cumulative impacts to a watershed. To a watershed. To, you have them, bef- even if you don't cut any trees, you have impacts to the intervening public land. Because the environmental protections, and I put quotes around protections, afforded these watersheds, Oregon Forest Practices Act, compare very poorly even to the reduced protections in the latest BLM Resource Management Plan. They compare horribly. You, so in other words, private land is allowed to get away with murder. They are. There's very little in the way of green tree retention. They, they finally, it took only 15 or 20 years to introduce some improved riparian protections on private, that is the buffers. Now, uh, last month, uh, this show interviewed Jason Gonzalez, 
who described the Oregon Forest Practices Act uh, weaknesses and how it compares to the state of California and Washington. So that goes into great detail about how poor Oregon logging laws are. Because every other section in our watershed is under these really poor regulations, they're just raped for every penny you can get, including clear-cutting, leaving no trees, no riparian buffers on small streams, and horrendous aerial herbicide spraying everywhere, then that leaves the watershed already highly degraded, so you're saying that the BLM part of these watersheds has to uphold more public resources. I make that claim to them. I tell them when they have a timber sale proposed, or if I'm commenting on an EA, that because of that context, because of all those nearby clear cuts and very young monoculture, tightly packed Douglas fir plantations, that they need to adjust their management actions accordingly. I need, I tell them in addition, when, when you look at an EA or a timber sale, BLM, they'll have tables giving acreage the size of what they intend to cut, the age of the stand, the composition of the stand, more or less. But they do not give you that information on the intervening private, which is critical. You can have a perennial, that is a year-round flowing stream that doesn't have fish. For whatever reason, it doesn't have fish. On the private, often, not always, but often, there will be no riparian protection left, no green tree left to shade that stream, to provide down wood. You can take one step over the property line onto BLM, and you'll have one site height potential tree, at least in the past. And that's about 150 feet. It, well, it varies. Less, yeah. It can be anywhere from 150 to 200, for pity's yeah. sake. Uh, in other words, even with the reduced protections on the new plan, the difference is astounding. What happens then, BLM will, will make an offhand reference in their proposal to this condition on private. They won't give you any stand-age information. When asked for it, they say, well, that's all private, and they're not going to tell us. Oh, they can't, like, look at an aerial photo and say, well, the stand-age is zero. Well, <laughs> precisely because in very many of their offerings, when they assess, particularly after a wildfire like Horse Prairie, they are very proud of saying that they use aerial photographs, LIDAR, and other high-tech methods to determine stand age, stand condition. In return, I'm saying fair play, turnabout is fair play. Tell me, by those means, inform me as a NEPA participant, what are the stand age conditions on the enjoining private industrial lands. Instead, they make very general comments. They will say, well, we know that they're going to keep harvesting on a 40-year rotation under the strictures of the Oregon Forest Practices Act. We know that streams on private lands exposed to sun 
raise temperatures and increase fish mortality, so on and so they forth. They admit that, huh? They admit it openly, but, but when it comes to a discussion of the baseline from which they measure their actions, in other words, we're going to regenerate this stand. There may be all around that public land, there may be recent clear-cuts, very young plantations, maybe a little bit older plantations, in all compass directions, often that's the case. Not always, but often. They, they admit generally, as I say, the contextual condition on private. No specifics, none, except for maybe saying 40-year rotations. Then they segue. But on BLM, we use project-specific measures, best management practices. So we're not going to have any effect. And even if there were any measurable effect, it'll be so small when it runs through the adjoining private, they say that. You won't be able to tell. So what they say then is that we're going to consider the impacts of what we do on BLM land, but we aren't going to consider the cumulative impacts of the neighboring private industrial forest land. Only in a very, very general and largely useful way, useless way. And so if they did consider the impacts on the adjoining land like they should under cumulative impacts that NEPA requires, what, what would they be able to do any logging at all on public lands or would it just be different? I wouldn't uh, want to say they couldn't do any, but I have been telling them that they should not on these watersheds so replete with very large clear cuts. They should not be introducing any more large openings, however euphemistically labeled they may be. And they have so many existing plantations, BLM does, that need thinning anyway. Why would they create new openings when they have all this backlog of thinning on existing plantations? Well, in the run-up to the recent resource management plan, Whopper Jr., they claimed that they were going to run out of thinning in X number of years, and they have to look ahead. This is a 15, 20, 25-year management plan, so they are obligated by law to look ahead and make sure they have enough merchantable trees to offer to satisfy the requirements, the sustained yield requirement of the 1937 O&C Act. So they they use that that kind of logic, which which is understandable. I, I get what they're saying. We have to supply a certain board feet of trees per year, and so we have to look ahead and plan accordingly. But I'm what I'm saying. For for example, take the issue of a chronically a strongly inferred and chronically depl- depleted summer flow regime. We would like to talk about the low flow issue more when we come back from a break. We have been talking with Pat Quinn, the conservation chair of Umqua Watersheds. This is Conservation Today, and we'll be right back. We are back. This is Conservation Today, and we're talking with Pat Quinn, conservation chair of Umqua Watersheds. And we were just talking 
about the checkerboard nature of the BLM private industrial forest lands that's all around us here in Douglas County and how we wish the BLM would consider the impacts of the private lands more when they propose large openings on BLM land. They, BLM, maintains in their documents, their NEPA documents, that they have considered that. But as far as discovering and disclosing that consideration, I don't see it. I don't see it. And therefore, I'm left in the dark as a NEPA participant. Well, what is the requirements of the ONC Act that they have to, what does it say something about protecting watersheds? In the very opening paragraphs of the ONC Act, they, they begin about with the sustained yield, the need to supply a, a sustainable flow of timber products for local economies and employment, etc. And, and it's not or, it's and, protect watersheds, regulate stream flows, and provide for recreation. And perhaps they aren't protecting the water flow and watershed by, by creating large openings on the public lands right next to the private land clear cuts? Right next to the private land clear cuts is the operative phrase. Because what I and others maintain, let's say hydrologically speaking, water-wise, when you have so much of the primary old growth and mature forest that has been removed over decades and replaced with water-consumptive Douglas fir plantations, and it happens over and over and over, what kind of a baseline do you have to measure from, to measure the impacts of your actions from, you have a depleted baseline. Not just with, hydrologically speaking, but in every respect. You have a, a gross disruption of connectivity between your forest stands. You have a gross simplification, biologically speaking, when you put in one species monoculture plantations that not only are egregious enough in themselves, but then you use greater or lesser amounts of aerially applied herbicides in increasing toxicity and strength to, to encourage further simplification. Now that is done by private industrial forest lands to a great extent. Luckily, BLM does not do aerial herbicide spraying for commodity production. They're not allowed to do that, to enhance growth, no. Right. Uh, it's basically a question of applying herbicides uh, handheld, for the most part, uh, to invasive and, and pernicious species. Mostly roadside. Mostly roadside, yes. Sometimes close to waterways. Uh, I have. You were mentioning earlier about a low-flow study that was looking at all these uh, private land clear cuts. And, of course, we want the BLM to consider all those clear cuts when they want to do additional large openings. And is there a low-flow study that they should be looking at? Tell me about that. Well, there's more than one, but, but the latest was conducted by Timothy Perry and Julia Jones out of Oregon State University. And they based the work on this study, which was first 
peer-reviewed and published in Very 2017. They based their conclusions on paired stream data. That is, when you have two streams in a watershed or in adjacent watersheds that have basically similar geomorphic characteristics. And two experimental forests, United States Forest Service, the H.J. Andrews on the Willamette National Forest and the South Umpqua Experimental Forest, on the Umpqua National Forest near Tiller. Turns out, for quite a few decades, the Forest Service recorded lots of data in these experimental forests where different types of extraction, of logging in experimental patches varying from 20-something acres to, say, around 250 acres. In some cases, they logged right down to the stream, didn't leave any riparian buffer. In others, they left a riparian buffer. There was a little bit of thinning, Admittedly, not much. Their conclusions, after 40 to 60 years, decades worth, some of the longest paired stream studies we have, their conclusions in each case, not just one or two, in each case on both experimental forests, cited at varying elevations on the west slope of the Cascade Range, if you remove 50% or more of the primary old-growth mature forest in a stream catchment, then that treated stream initially gets a pulse of increased flow, and that can be anywhere from three or five or six years to 23, 24 years. And that's just removing 50%. 50% or more. Or more. The 50% primary. is the baseline you have to remove to get this effect. So you clear-cut you end up after that period of time, and it varies with tree species. Some trees have a different... What you're doing is, when you remove all those trees, you eliminate for a while the evapotranspiration. That is, the trees, the process whereby trees extract moisture from the soil, through the roots, up the trunk of the tree, to the needles, and out the stomata of the needles or leaves into the atmosphere. And so, therefore, that allows more water to flow down in the watershed. Initially. Initially. For how long? It varies. It varies on the site, apparently, and it varies on the tree species. And then what happens? From there out, let's say from 25 years to as long as they have looked, you end up in the summertime with only half, 50% of the summer flow that you have in the untreated reference stream where you didn't log at all, where the primary forest is still standing. This happened in every single case. This paper, Perry Jones, looked at that. And so uh, when you log more than 50% of the primary forest in a watershed, it will reduce the summertime low flows by 50%. By 50% in every single case. This is Forest Service, United States Forest Service, hard data kept over decades is still being kept in those on those locations now admittedly more needs to be done relative to thinning you leave more trees you're not going to get that effect or you're going to have a less of an effect i i speculate here but that that's logical now is that that reduced uh, summer flows 
um, initially there's increased summer flows for a short time, let's say 10 years. It varies. varies. And then there's reduced summer flows because the trees are now uh, taking up that water. Yeah, and because when you have, uh, this, is, this applies to Douglas fir. Different species have different rates of evapotranspiration. Coast redwood, for example, they, don't, they can't control it at all. They'll suck water in the worst of a drought. That's why it's a mistake to put them into riparian reserves like Lone Rock Timber has done down in King Creek in Coos County. But Douglas fir, the young plantations, don't control their evapotranspiration as well. The ratio, the volume of needle surface to cambium in the bark is greater because they're smaller. More of their area is in needles. Mm -hmm. They have a, a larger rate of evapotranspiration. They use more water. Now, BLM, when I bring this up to them and others, they say, well, we're leaving generous riparian buffers, and that prevents low flow. Now, as we learned, and logic would tell you this if you thought about it long enough, but as we learned at the low flow forum held at OSU at the uh, Pacific Northwest Research Station on April 4th of this year, Steve Wansel, an authority on this subject, disabused that claim. I mean, it's logic. How much soil moisture is actually contained in your riparian buffer underneath those trees? Is it enough to, to supply their evapotranspiration needs and also keep the stream up? Obviously not. It can't. There's no way that it can. Because the riparian buffer is only a small percentage of the watershed. A small percentage of the watershed. If you're on a regen or a clear cut, or then my God, how many clear cuts on private land have no riparian buffer or a very small one? Yes, right. So what you've got is this cumulative impact over time. Mm -hmm. So this is particularly important for BLM lands being in the checkerboard. And so uh, it's the cumulative impact of the clear-cutting next to the BLM lands that should uh, really reduce the summertime flows, and BLM can add to that when they also do large openings. Yeah, even but, if it's only a small amount. But, do, but they don't uh, recognize this. They fall back on their best management practices and project-specific measures that they take. But this is a new study, and so all the measures they fall back on is under older assumptions. In some cases, yes. Actually, this question of uh, chronic summer flow depletion, not just in the Northwest but elsewhere as well, has been around for a while. It just hasn't gained traction. We recognized it, I and others, recognized it immediately, especially now when the last four out of the last five years have been drought years. This year, an extreme drought year. Yes, yes. We've had temperatures recorded by the Watermaster and the South Umpqua River, not far upstream from its confluence with the North Umpqua. 80 degrees this summer. According to the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, 78 degrees on the South Coquille this summer. Well, that's fish-killing temperature. Anything much above 68 degrees is lethal. Lethal for anadromous fish. Salmon, steelhead, trout that are seagoing. So all this uh, upslope clear-cutting up to the top of the mountains can have a drastic effect on fish 
way downstream. Not just with a depleted flow, but with increased temperatures. Right. Uh, absolutely. How can it not? How can it not? BLM admits that in their EAs. They admit that there'll be stream heating. But they're going to take care of it when that stream hits their place. It'll all come right again. And then when it leaves, well, they tell you that it's on its own then when it goes across private. Good luck. Good luck. These are cumulative impacts. Absolutely. Yep. And, the, and the fish in the river, they don't recognize any of these boundary lines. Right. These every other section. So you asked BLM to consider not doing any more large openings because of this cumulative effect with the adjoining private land. And they say, no, we won't recognize those studies as being relevant. No, that's exactly what they say. Um, uh, uh, they will not. Uh, they claim their best manage management practices take care of all of these considerations. Again, as I say, they're not really looking at the baseline that they have. And that baseline, I think it's very credible to say that it is an already depleted baseline. How can you not, when there are so many clear cuts, when so much of the primary forest across all ownerships was converted to plantation over decades, how can you not have an already degraded condition from which you are measuring? What are some of the timber sales that BLM has proposed recently that have this problem? It's hard to say that uh, it's hard to find one that doesn't. Honestly, it is. Is there a group of sales in the uh, South Umpqua? What's the name of those sales? Days Creek South Umpqua Harvest Plan. One sale after the other. This is uh, a watershed. We all know the, the shape of the South Umpqua this summer the temperature, the trickle of a flow, the water withdrawals for irrigation, at least it will have more green tree retention. But it has large openings, and that's what the problem is. To my mind, large openings and restocking. The, initially, with variable retention harvest, there wasn't going to be any artificial restocking, replanting. But due to the sustained yield requirement of the ONC Act, they say they're going to put 200 trees per acre in these openings. Now, a regen, and they do propose regens, although under the old plan, because this is under the old plan, Days yeah. Creek, South Umpqua, they can do an out-and-out -out regen, which, uh, aside from your two-site height potential riparian buffer on stream fish-bearing streams and one site height potential on non-fish-bearing but year-round flowing streams, they would only have to leave six to eight green trees per acre in aggregate. These are large openings. And if those watersheds were all in public hands and there was a good deal of the primary forests left, we might not like to see this, but would it be as an egregious an impact? No. But it is because of what's going on all around it. The ONC Act said protect watersheds. It didn't say protect the watersheds just on public land. No. How can you do that? It's an impossibility. 
protect all watersheds, the per entire period, watershed. Period. Stream flows. I mean, think about it. Think about every other section in relation to the aquatic health of a stream. How in the devil can that be done? It cannot. It cannot. What about Coos Bay BLM? They had a sale called shark bait. Yeah, that's part of their six twigs analysis area. And the six twigs analysis area was over 100,000 acres. They propose, they, they only manage a small proportion of this analysis area. But this is the one that they only manage 6% something like of that. the watershed. Yeah, yeah, it's less than it 50%. Is. Yeah. It is hammered. Moore's Mills and uh, other large operators have clear-cut the, the divil out of it over the last 15, 20 years. It, it, it was cut a lot before then on all ownerships. BLM cut their share of primary forests, too. Uh, they all did. The... Uh, the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest has a holding in this analysis area as well. And they did their share of old growth logging up until the Northwest Forest Plan came into effect. So they've offered different sales. They've offered Crystal Clear and First Florist, which were small regens with some commercial thinning. Uh, we showed them the pictures on Google Earth and the Oregon Department of Forestry site. Hey, look at this. It's clear-cut like crazy around the little pieces of BLM land. You can't do this. The, we're already in trouble here. I gave them copies. I gave them quotes from a watershed assessment done some years ago by the Sixes River Watershed Association that listed low flow, temperature, sedimentation as impediments to the restoration of salmon and steelhead runs. I pointed out to them how many of these Flores Creek, Crystal Creek, the names of their sales, were listed by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality under the Clean Water Act, 303D listed for various parameters, temperature, flow, dissolved oxygen, it varies with the stream. So they're already in an impaired condition. But they're going to go ahead and do region harvest large openings within that impaired watershed? Well, as a practical matter, nobody bid on the sales. Okay. We have those sales under appeal right now Okay. with the Interior Board of Land Appeals. They threw up some egregious arguments relative to Perry Jones, maintaining that, oh, Perry Jones was on the west slope of the Cascades. We're over near the coast, 10 miles or so or less even, from the surf. So, huh, how does this apply to us? In the same breath, they quoted studies purporting to tell us the old story we've heard forever from agencies and industry that after you take the primary forest off, yeah, you get that increased flow. Yeah, you get a decreased flow. As I was explaining before, because of evapotranspiration, but once the plantations are 25 or so years old, you're golden. They quoted a study done where? On the coast? No. On the west slope of the Cascades? No. In the Umatilla National Forest, hundreds of miles further north and east from this analysis area. So they think that the Umatilla has valid studies, but the 
Cascades doesn't for the Coast Range. Oh, well, in some cases it does. They cite a study on the H.J. Andrews, one of the two experimental forests relating to marine fog, to the moisture derived when trees drip from fog inundation. Hey, seriously? For real? What about the most recent uh, BLM logging proposal, the Daddy O timber sale in the Horse Prairie Fire Salvage? Now, Horse Prairie was a fire over by Riddle uh, last summer, and now BLM is getting ready to salvage log the Horse Prairie Fire. Uh, this is a very recent proposal of theirs. How, how is that proposal? Well, it's a mixed bag. A lot of it uh, is very worrisome, environmentally speaking. And again, that is because of the surrounding ownership context. BLM estimates that the private landowners up there, industrial owners, will salvage log, will basically clear-cut their burnt lands to the tune of 38, maybe 3,800 to 4,000 acres in that footprint. Now, I'm not certain exactly how that impinges on BLM, but it does in each unit case. And even though these forests are burnt, the salvage, the clear-cutting of those will exasperate the issues. Well, that's what the science tells us. The ground will be compacted. Uh, natural regeneration will be obliterated because they'll replant it heavily. Mm -hmm. uh, With nursery stock. They'll spray it heavily, aerially apply herbicides. Who knows which ones? 2,4-D, atrazine, we don't know. Um, and the shade from the uh, remaining uh, fuel standing will be eliminated. It'll be eliminated. A any Any ecological benefit you get in what we call a snag forest post-fire will be totally and completely eliminated. No woodpecker habitat? None. No native bee habitat, which increases in burn forests? I, I won't say no. I, mean, I, I don't know for a fact, but I would say all of those things would be limited. On the private land? On the private land, whereas on public land. Now, admittedly, uh, the BLM is not proposing huge salvage operations per se i have to give them that they are not oh the total i think it was i forget seven thousand some odd acres uh, i could be even wrong on that they're only proposing actual salvage on 146 acres they're do proposing at the same time regeneration harvest of green and dead or dying trees on 145 acres so a lot of green trees will be taken. They will. Uh, however, if you look at the total acreage, 380, less than 400 acres, in those actual specific operations, it certainly compares like, it, like it's what less than 10% of what's, approximately 10% of what's going on on the adjoining private. We don't like any area salvage. On public lands. On public lands or anywhere. But we, we realize that some of it is bound to occur for whatever reason. In this case, it's to meet their assigned sale quantity of 32 million uh, board feet. They, they estimate they're going to get 10 million 
backboard feet towards their ASQ from Horse Prairie. On the one hand, what they propose doing is far less egregious than what's going on on the private. On the other hand, our only hope on these watersheds is on our public lands. The only purchase we as citizens have to affect environmental considerations is on our public lands. So we are, we become worried. We are going to talk more about what the BLM is planning uh, when we come back from another break. We are talking with Pat Quinn, the conservation chair for Umqua Watersheds. Pat does all the NEPA public comments for us in our name for Umqua Watersheds. And it's fascinating uh, to hear what's going on with the BLM. And we're going to talk more when we come right back. This is Francis Southington. I'm your, your host on Conservation Today. We are back with Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we are talking with Pat Quinn, the Conservation Chair of Umco Watersheds. We were just talking about the Horse Prairie Fire Salvage. Now, Pat, wasn't there a recent study called Zalden Dunn about fire and, and how fire acts over the landscape in plantations versus mature forests? Interesting that you should mention Zalden Dunn because the Horse Prairie Fire butts up against the 2013 Douglas Complex Fire. Right, down there by Riddle. The Humboldt and Oregon State University Schools of Forestry and the Roseburg BLM commissioned Zalden Dunn and others to study what influences obtained on the Douglas Complex fire affecting the intensity of the burn and the rapidity of its spread. What do you mean by rapidity of the spread? How fast it spreads? How fast it spreads, how fast it you know, achieves crown, uh, crowns of the whole, the whole thing. So this is a study by... Oregon State University. And Humboldt State University, Humboldt. Schools of Forestry. Mm-hmm. And what did the study find? And Roseburg BLM. And Roseburg BLM. Well, among, I mean, to simplify it, their conclusion was that at least on the Douglas Complex, and that's a representative checkerboard arrangement, public and private land, older stands mixed in with industrial monoculture plantations, their conclusion was that in that case, those tightly packed industrial plantations had more impact, more influence over the rapidity, how fast the fire spread, and its intensity, how hot it burned. So in other words, it found that those young industrial tree plantations on the private lands spread the fire faster and hotter. Had more influence than older, fuel-laden public lands. That was their conclusion. The public lands had m- more mature timber and less tree plantations, and so the public lands did not burn as hot. Well, at least the public lands that are older stands. Right. Yes, indeed, because those tr- it's, it's not dissimilar to the low flow issue. The, the trees are young. Their proportion of leaf area to the hardwood is greater. 
they're low to the ground. They, they go up like a rag soaked in kerosene, for pity's sake. In the Horse Prairie documents that Roseburg BLM put out, they mention Zolden Dunn. Because it's right next door to right. that study. Yeah, in fact, they, the two fires overlapped a little bit. And their conclusion was, well, we know the plantations have this effect and they can really impact our public lands. And so maybe along the edges of our public lands, we should take some trees out and thin them to protect them from the, this impact, this cumulative impact from the private industrial stands. So, so their idea is that we have to protect public lands from the adjoining private lands because there's such a fire hazard to private lands. Yeah, and of course, as we stated earlier in this interview, that's not the only impact. Right. Low flows. All kinds of cumulative impacts. So here we find two different studies have found that the private land impacts are very degrading to our watersheds and a threat to our public lands. That seems to be the opposite from what I've been hearing from the timber industry who claims that so-called unmanaged public lands are a bigger fire hazard. So that has been debunked now. Oh, they don't like Perry Jones, and they don't like Zold and Dunn. Private land doesn't. Uh, they don't, and I am sure they're digging hard to refute them. These monoculture plantations have all kinds of damaging implications. Nature does not favor a monoculture. So they haven't acknowledged the studies. Uh, they haven't admitted that they're the problem with fire hazard, not the BLM lands. Certainly not. I mean, we recall uh, Secure Rural Schools, the Title III portion of that, that our commissioners in Douglas County awarded to Communities for Healthy Forests. And they were going to show with $200,000 of your taxpayer money, yours and mine, and everyone else's, that this wonderful private land industrial short rotation plantation paradigm was what was going to save us from wildfire. And these decadent, old, fuel-laden public lands, we've got to get at them. We've got to actively manage them. The science doesn't say that. You mentioned the group, the Communities for Healthy Forests, which is really a timber industry group. And, of course, they're biased because they want to be able to log BLM lands. And so they use $200,000 of our taxpayer money to try and prove that the public lands are the fire hazard. Exactly right. That, in essence, yes. I would say yes. But actually, the, the university studies show the opposite. Yeah, some of the members of that group took a little bit of umbrage when I sent that study, Zolden Dunn, to them. A former BLM director did, too, whose name I won't mention, until I pointed out to him that Roseburg BLM was uh, one of the sponsors. There, it wasn't uh, Earth Guardians or Umpqua Watersheds or the Sierra Club or Oregon Wild that sponsored this study. It was two schools of forestry and Roseburg BLM. Additionally... Additionally, another study out of OSU on the Douglas Complex showed that there was a great increased pulse of native pollinating insects on that non-salvaged portions of the Douglas Complex. So 
the tremendous increase in wildlife on a burned, unsalvaged forest. They pointed out how only a small portion of the burned trees are suitable for woodpecker attack. For the woodpeckers, they're, they're, the rest are too hard initially. And why it's important to have a lot of burned trees. 50 adjunct species are supported by the activities of blackback and other woodpeckers on a fire footprint. 50 different kinds of living creatures are supported by that activity. Because, of course, uh, the Pacific Northwest naturally has had wildland fire for millions of years, and so our species have evolved to uh, take advantage of that burned, unsalvaged habitat. It's especially interesting about the pollinators and the bees, since the bees are really having a hard time these days. This is, this is true. Historically, it's true. Fire has been a regular presence in the Rocky Mountain West, in the Pacific Northwest, in California. Okay, there has been a buildup of fuel because there's been a deliberate policy for over a hundred years to put fires out right away. We don't get the low-intensity fires. But there is such a huge, a vast amount of fuel buildup, um, the acreage I'm talking about now, in, from the Rocky Mountains, from the Continental Divide West. The money, the time, the willpower to treat all of that is beyond our capabilities. Where we should be concentrating our efforts is in the wildland-urban interface, where people live. Reduce the fuel load there. That's where you get the best bang for your buck. And do less fire suppression elsewhere. Where you can, where it's feasible. Right now, up there by uh, uh, the reservoir up on the uh, Mackenzie River, that fire, the uh, Terwilliger fire, it's in the wilderness, and it's burning fairly slowly, not gone wild, not crazy, and they're letting it go, the Forest Service, with some constraint. It's not headed towards anyone's homes or businesses. Let me ask you this question. You mentioned that um, perhaps our local county government is uh, fearful of these natural fires. In what way do you see that fear coming out? I see them using that fear. I see them using that fear to gin up political support, to put pressure on the BLM, the Interior Department. Who has done that? Well, our county commissioners. Like Tim Freeman? Tim Freeman, Chris Boyce. Did Tim Freeman write a letter to the editor or something recently? He had an opinion piece in the News Review uh, three Sundays ago, if I remember correctly. He uh, did not mention climate change and fuel suppression. He mentioned overloaded fuel on public lands. He didn't mention Zalden Dunn. He had nothing to say about the intervening plantations that burn like a rag soaked in kerosene. That the studies found burn hotter than the BLM lands. He wants that cut, and they want it cut. They want the BLM lands cut. Well, because they get 50% of the profits. They get 50% of the profits, yes. They get nothing, basically, from all that private industrial cutting that's going on now. Under the 1936 ONCEC 
our county government gets 50% of the cut on BLM land, and that's why they're such champions of cutting BLM land. You better believe it. And so, therefore, uh, we don't rely on a tax base to provide public services. We rely on the 50% of federal land clear-cutting, which doesn't happen as much anymore. Exactly right. We have, generally speaking, we have, especially in these counties in southwest Oregon, have very low tax rates per thousand. There's, there's a history to this. There's a history to timber taxation and all kinds of taxation in Oregon. It's Byzantine. It's complicated. But you can simplify it. And the beneficiaries in the last 25 or so years, to a large extent, have been big industrial timberland owners. They've benefited from low taxes? You better believe it. More so than than historically? Oh, yes. Historically, you know, if you look back, uh, uh, when timber was cut or before it was cut, the state imposed considerable taxation on that resource, whether in the form of a yield tax, where you estimate the volume you're going to cut and you pay up front. 1947, that was 12% per thousand board feet. My God, that's huge. In the mid-70s, it was right around 7%. Severance, that's what you pay on the scaled board foot volume after you cut. So the timber industry paid 7% severance tax in the early 90s. No, in the early 90s, that was in the 70s. In that the early it. 90s, it had been reduced to around 3.5% severance. Well, it kept going down. It kept going down. It well, went down it? even further. They don't pay any severance now. When did that happen? That happened over a period of about eight years or so. Uh, the legislature decided to do away with severance on large timber holdings. That's 5,000 acres and up, what I call big timber, and replace it with property tax. But not just any property tax, with an ad valorem. That's where you have different classifications as to the value of the land per, for growing trees. And not only that, but you have timber tax. So that they got a reduction from the assessed value, what you and I pay on our house, is only 20% for well, timberland. Let, let me get this straight. So they used to pay a severance tax, and that severance tax was eliminated, and they've always paid property tax in addition to that severance tax, so how did that change? Well, 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 the property tax included the trees at one time. And I think wisely they decided that's an incentive to cut. Cut your trees, get rid of them, and then you're not paying the tax. Just on the land, the land's money. But they paid a severance tax on the cut trees. Or a yield, yeah, mostly a severance. They did. So now they're only paying property tax on the, bare, on the land itself, and that the, the state decides... The Department of Revenue, I guess with the Department of Forestry, classifies that land's productivity and therefore how much they pay, but it's we not all, much. So how is it different than our property? We all pay property tax. So the timber industry doesn't pay anything on the, uh, when they cut the trees. They do pay. They pay a very nominal harvest tax that everyone, that all logs cut in the state pay. Those are logs sourced on BLM, Forest Service, state forest lands, county forest lands, private, small. It's called the Oregon Forest Products Harvest Tax. And 
it you know maybe it amounts to four dollars and change a thousand board feet about less than a half a percent well does that help provide our county services no least? no no it doesn't no it like ernie Nemi, the forest economist has pointed out more than once it comes from goes from one pocket of the timber industry back into their other pocket it pays for the school helps pay for the school of forestry at osu it helps pay for fire suppression that's the only thing that even touch comes back to the county a little bit but it's for their interest for their lands it also pays for those disingenuous lying propaganda ads from the oregon forest resources institute that people see on tv purporting to tell us how wonderful the forest products the forest practices act are for our watersheds and we know that those are about as phony as a three dollar bill so none of that money comes back and so the timber industry, so we used to get, I assume, millions and millions oh, yeah. for public services from the timber industry severance tax. And uh, I, they still pay that up in, the, in other states. Oh, it's yeah, 5% five, five in Washington. Uh, if I recall right, I think it's 25 or 3% in California. And so we pay, our timber industry pays none of that here, but they do on, when, on their lands in other oh, states. Oh, yeah, warehouser. Any, uh, it depends on the state, uh, but 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 warehouser. Don't they feel guilty for not paying it, and only in Oregon they don't have to pay that? P please, Francis, this is not a comedy show. <laughs> you, if you're trying to get me to laugh, you're doing a good job. No. Well, what's your excuse for not paying it in Oregon? They're not going to offer any excuse. They're laughing all the way to the bank, laughing all the way to the bank. The commissioners know this. I've often suggested to them in print and in person that instead of taking SRS Title III money and using it to fly back to Washington, D.C. to lobby the Interior and Agriculture Departments to get the cutout on public lands, that they go in their county car to Salem and lobby the governor and the legislature to reintroduce reasonable harvest taxes on all timber holdings, particularly on those of 5,000 acres and up. Under 5,000, you do pay severance. It's not a lot. Oh, so, so It's a really small it's amount. A small guy pays and the big guy doesn't have to pay. And I assume one of the reasons is because the big industrial forest landowners provide jobs for Oregon. But then we hear that large companies like Weyerhaeuser... When they cut their trees, they ship a lot of them over to Asia, and they bypass our local mills and local jobs, and they get away scot-free with not paying any severance tax. That is the truth, especially you look at, I mean, Weyerhaeuser is a big outfit. they got huge holdings in western Oregon, huge. One of their biggest, as we know, is the over 200,000-acre Millicoma tree farm mm -hmm. way over on the coast. 240,000-acre Millicoma trees. Lots of their trees out of Millicoma go right to the dock, whether it's to uh, uh, Menasha, Campbell Worldwide, which changed hands or something else now, or to the Coquille Tribe, who has an export dock themselves. In their newsletter, the Coquille Tribe estimated that it takes 1,000 log truck loads to fully lade one of those red Chinese uh, log hauling boats across the Pacific. That's uh, about 6 million 
board feet, if, I, if my uh, numbers uh, are correct, if I recall correctly. I wonder how many local mill jobs that would be if they didn't ship them overseas. Well, the BLM made estimates in their Whopper Jr., and I uh, threw some of those back at them. I, I'd have to go consult uh, my comments to give you an exact number, but I used their uh, proportionate, I use their numbers to tell them how many jobs are exported. So why are you bothering me about how many jobs you're going to supply with your ASQ? When, and the same thing applies to the revenue. That's always a constant thing in BLM purpose and need statements for any timber sale. We got to supply that revenue to the counties. Well, I like to tell them, listen, look at industrial timber. They're not paying well, I want to use a certain expletive, but I won't. They're not paying anything. Yeah, you know. For severance tax that would go back to the county, zero. They're not, look, it's not that they don't pay any tax. It's simply that they don't pay the fair share that they were accustomed to pay to help support county and state government. And that they pay in other states. They, and now they're increasingly organized in trusts, real estate investment trusts, timber investment management organizations that get even greater tax benefits from the federal and the state governments. And who knows, maybe, they're all, maybe the people invested in them are local. Maybe they're oligarchs in Moscow or in Beijing. We know that they're scattered around the world. This makes a colony out of our state. Cut and export. Cut. The money goes out. Uh. So, did you write a poem about this? <laughs> I can go get it. Oh, let me just put this on. I wasn't prepared for any poetry shenanigans today. <laughs> I'm sorry, I get all worked up and I start in, Francis. You know, I don't, I'm trying to be careful not to paint everything completely black and white, because it isn't. Be, you know, because they do make jobs, and we, you do need some mills, and you do need to cut some trees. It's just that you, you have to look at the big picture, and not, and the, the, not just spatially, but temporally, too. Well, Pat, it's been a fascinating interview, and uh, we're just about out of time. Do you have any uh, final words for our audience? People, right now we have, as you know, taken a very odd, I would ha dare say, or extremely rightward turn in our political establishments, national, in some states, Counties, our county, the chances of conserving the remaining intact natural functions that remain on our watersheds, our beleaguered watersheds, are diminished politically. Diminished. The courts, as we speak, from the highest court of the land to the lowest federal court, district courts and magistrates are being packed with people who, at first glance at least, do not consider 
environmental services from intact watersheds to be of great concern or value. You would think conservative and conservation sharing the same root word would be allied on this, but sad to say they are not. So where does that leave us? If we can't trust the courts, maybe we can, maybe we can't. If we can't trust the political process, it's an on-again, off-again thing. Certainly not reliable, that's clear. We have to trust ourselves. It may well be that the only thing that will improve conditions on our watersheds will be when the public, the changing, the rapidly changing demographic in Oregon, when it becomes alarmed, aware, and even enraged that there's a groundswell, a popular outrage that says this can't go on, these 120-acre clear-cuts, these butchering of streams, this simplification of biodiversity, this spreading of poison. It's going to take people standing up and speaking up and not just taking it. We volunteers, I'm a volunteer. What I do, in a sense, it's against the whole building of paid people down in town. I can't do it. I I can't carry it. I can try, but I can only go so far, so long. I'm almost 70 years old. Young people, everybody, we need to speak up. What is happening is wrong. It's wrong scientifically. It's wrong ethically. It's wrong morally and practically speaking. It is wrong. We're cutting our own throat, water, air, wildlife. Thank you, Pat Quinn, Conservation Chair for Umco Watersheds. Those are some thoughts for us to all think about. This is Conservation Today. I'm your host, Francis Etherington, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you again, Pat. You're welcome, Francis.